today on episode number 283 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, we talk about living, learning communities that work. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited today to be introducing you to three of the authors of a book, Living Learning Communities, I'm grateful to Peter Felton for making these introductions to me and for introducing me to this fascinating topic. Let's start with Mimi Benjamin. Mimi Benjamin is an associate professor of student affairs and higher education at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Her research interests include student co-curricular learning outcomes, learning communities, and faculty experiences. Mimi earned her Ph.D. in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies with a focus on higher education from Iowa State University, her M.Ed. in College Student Personnel from Ohio University, her M.A. in English from Clarion University of Pennsylvania, and her B.S. in Secondary Education English from Carleton University of Pennsylvania. The next guest I'd like to introduce you to is Karen Kurosuki Inkales. She has a PhD and is an associate professor in the higher education program in the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia. Karen's scholarship focuses on the impact of college on undergraduate students, and she is best known, as you'll hear about today, for her research on living learning communities. Today's third and final guest is Jody E. Jessup Anger. Associate Professor of Higher Education at Marquette University. Prior to joining the faculty, she served as a student affairs administrator for seven years in roles such as resident life assignment coordinator, residence hall director, and assistant director and interim director of a women's center with an academic unit embedded in it. She received her PhD in higher adult and lifelong education from Michigan State University, her MS in Student Affairs and Higher Education from Colorado State University, and a BA in International Studies from American University. Welcome to all three of you to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Great to be here. We are going to start out with some definitions, but I know we won't spend too much time, but if we don't frame this conversation with them, at least some of us, myself very specifically, might be left a little bit confused. I know, Karen, you have been elected to orient us to a few terms, starting with high impact practices and then sharing about what a learning community is and then specifically the theme for today's episode, a living learning community. We're ready to learn from you, Karen. Sure, no problem. So listeners might be aware that there are 11 college experiences or what are called high-impact practices that were identified by the AAC and U, the American Association of Colleges and Universities, that the research suggests are the most beneficial for student outcomes. Those are things like conducting undergraduate research, studying abroad, doing service learning, conducting a capstone, internships, things like that. 
One of those high impact practices is a learning community. Now, learning communities are typically smaller sets of groups who work closely together on a specific topic over time. That can happen in, say, a team taught course or link courses that are linked together by discipline, or a popular form of learning community combines living and learning together, where students who participate in that shared learning community also live together in the same residence hall. So this way, their in and out of class experience is more or less seamlessly combined. Those types of living learning communities can take several forms, including, say, a residential college, which some might maybe most familiar with. Those are the kinds that basically are derivatives from Oxford and Cambridge. But there's a lot of other variations of living learning communities as well. In fact, my research documents over 17 different types. Mm. So over the course of the 20th and 21st century, they've kind of blossomed into all different kinds of types. And it really, it's context specific. Different universities have different types of living learning communities. One of the things that's happening at my institution, I've been here 15 years now, and and, and just really a growing commuter population. What has your research showed you about how different institutions are navigating having, because I know we're not alone in that, having more commuters, and whether or not, I I sort of, this is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Does there tend to be more of that sense of exclusivity around things like this? Do, Do we feel like people then lose out on the access to this kind of learning environment? Living learning communities definitely are much more popular on traditional four-year college and universities where most of the students live on campus or in proximity to the campus. That being said, I think that we're going to experience a sort of a renaissance of this idea again, Mm. and it might actually turn back more toward the traditional notion of the learning community, and it might use more, say, technology like online platforms or classroom management systems that tries to bring people together maybe asynchronously. So it might lose the residential piece, but it'll still maintain this idea of a smaller, more intimate community of people who are all interested in a common academic endeavor. That's not really the focus of our research because we're looking at the residential ones. But I I do see as Americans go to college in more different and diverse ways, we're going to have to think of more creative ways to bring them together around academic topics. And I would also add that certainly community colleges are well known for learning community initiatives, not again, not the residential or living learning ones, but um, certainly supporting commuter students. Community colleges um, do a great job with learning communities. I appreciate you saying that, Mimi, and this actually takes us nicely into another broad theme that I know your research is grounded in, and it comes from Dewey all the way back in 1938. He encouraged educators to, and I'm quoting here now, to ground the curriculum in students' experiences, cultivating students' individuality, advancing their interests and promoting their construction of knowledge. And Jody, I know you have a good example for us of just living up to what what Dewey lays out here for us in the area of social justice. Would you share that story, Jody? Sure, absolutely. So my research has taken me into several social justice living learning communities. And we saw this notion of what Dewey envisioned in action in one of the communities. And In this community, students were living together on two residence hall floors, and they were taking two courses together that were grounded in social justice concepts. And how students describe their experiences 
in the community while they were in their first semester, while they were in their second semester, and then one year later, is that they moved from a preconceived understanding of what social justice was and then were exposed to the curriculum and also exposed to deep conversations with their friends and peers that were also in the community. And those conversations helped them to challenge their misconceptions. And they began to integrate new knowledge from their coursework and from their peers' understanding and also from their experiences in the community. And that really helped them to create a new, more nuanced understanding of social justice that incorporated theory and also incorporated real world practice. Because these students, in addition to living together and taking in classes together were really engaged in their community. And so they were going out and doing work in the community. They were, you know, attending events together that exposed them to new ideas. And so that's really where I have seen, you know, Dewey's vision in practice. There was this lively conversation on Twitter over the last week or so around learning outcomes. And I'm sure you've all heard of this where there are those that really want precise, immovable goals that are completely objective. I'm completely, by the way, exaggerating here, but then on the other side of that tension is, oh, we'll all come together and we'll decide and nothing could be defined before you get here and before we arrive and see what what takes place. And I think either, as you could tell from the way I'm describing this, either extreme probably isn't helpful in the learning process. But one of the themes that was coming out that it seemed like most people agreed with was this idea that part of our role as teachers, is to help people change their minds. And and I would hope that it wouldn't be to change their minds to always necessarily agree with us. But just this, and it's part of human development, of course, but seeing the world, as you said, in a more nuanced way, and also opening up the possibilities that, I don't know, we might be wrong about things. We might have perceptions that were ill-informed. And what a wonderful opportunity this is for young people and old people <laughs> to come together and learn in this way. So it was actually John Dewey who was pretty much responsible for sort of the renaissance to returning to living learning communities in American higher education, because it was Dewey and other sort of early 20th century reformers who were saying that we'd lost our way in terms of how we're educating undergraduates, that we'd become too specialized in our disciplines and we'd lost the liberal arts tradition. Mm. And so both Dewey and this other fellow named Alexander Nicoljohn had strongly argued we need to return to a liberal arts tradition that is more experiential, that helps the next generations of citizens and scholars to take more charge of themselves and their their co-construction of knowledge. And so Mickeljohn took that to the next step and created what was called then the Experimental College, which most credit as being the first 20th century living learning community. Another aspect of your research has to do with persistence. And from your research, you report about Aston asserting that student involvement, which requires an investment of physical and psychological energy, is a critical element of student development. You also share about these learning communities, residential learning communities, increasing student involvement between faculty, staff, and peers, thus contributing to a student's overall development. Mimi, would you share a little bit about what you have found about persistence and also this involvement between faculty, staff, and peers in residential learning communities? Sure. So one of the things that is true about residential learning communities is that many of them are for first-year students. 
And so this idea of creating community is really important and it can help students feel connected both to the institution and to their academic pursuits. What's interesting is sometimes students don't even realize that they're in a program or that they've signed up for one. And this is where faculty who are teaching courses in these programs can really be helpful because they can remind the students that they actually live together. Ironically, I had a faculty member tell me that he mentioned to students one time in the class that, you know, you all live together and they were looking around. It's like, oh, yeah, I do see you in the hall. I guess, isn't that funny? We all live together. And so I, I think faculty have a really great opportunity to reinforce the identity of the living learning community in the courses. There's research, you know, by Lori Schreiner and her colleagues. They did research on thriving. And one of the things about thriving that the research indicates is that degree goals, campus involvement, and psychological sense of community are important for first-year students thriving. And one of the benefits of the living learning communities is that they offer the opportunity to advance all of these. So the involvement in the co-curricular elements like programs in the residence hall or attending activities on campus that are related to the living learning community really help with a lot of these factors. And these are then elements that impact student persistence on campus. We've been able to look at some examples of living learning communities and also have gotten down those definitions. But now we're going to look at the advances in coming up with a model. And Karen, before we get to your answers around specifically living learning communities, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your intentional use of the phrase best practices. Sometimes when we hear best practices, we can start to bristle a little bit and think, okay, can we, can we take something as messy as learning and actually identify best practices? And I really love what you have to share about this and why you intentionally decided to go with that phrase. Sure. So when we were putting together the model initially, as well as when we were running the book, I hesitated too, to call it best practices just because it sounds a little arrogant and somewhat <laughs> Um, presumptuous that we would actually know the best way to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but it occurred to us is that this model is very aspirational, that most living learning communities don't have every element of the model that we propose, because it is aspirational. For example, I run my own living learning community here at the University of Virginia, and we don't even have all the elements of the model in, in the very community that I run when I am one of the authors of this model. And so in that way, I thought, then it's all right to call it a best practices model because it's, it's something that we all aspire to becoming, but we may never get there, right? We all hope to in our, in our work over the course of time. Stephen Brookfield has written about and spoken about that word becoming, and I just find that so freeing because it's, it's, it's one of those classic things where the more you know about something, the less you realize that you know about something. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a helpful way for us to frame our work as teachers, as people who really want to serve our students well. We're never done. We are always becoming. Thank you for that as an example. Let's get back to then the specifics of the research that you've done. Would you describe for us the research that led to this best practices model, Karen? So I was principal investigator of a very large national study of living learning communities, which was called the National Study of Living Learning Programs, or the NSLLP. And it included over 48,000 students at 46 universities in over 600 living learning communities. So it was a very large study. 
And we collected data from students who were in those living learning communities, as well as the staff who ran them, who told us a little bit about how they were organized. And then we conducted four site visits at universities that we collected data from, and their students elicited the strongest outcome data. So we thought, what are they doing that's making them stand out above all the other 46 universities in the study? So we went to those four campuses to find out. And across all that information, the student survey data, the staff survey data, and the campus site visits, we started seeing some common threads about what seemed to be working at some of the better models that came out through the course of our study. And we started putting together our model. That model is in the shape of a pyramid. Mm -hmm. It has four different levels. For those who are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it operates in a very similar fashion. As you know, Maslow argues that humans can't attend to their more higher order needs until they've met some of their, met some of their basic needs, like air, food, water, things like that. Ours is the same in that we believe there are certain types of elements of the infrastructure that needs to be satisfied before we can start thinking about academic, co-curricular, and other types of events or activities. But I'm going to shift things over now to Jody and Mimu, who are going to help fill in the model a little bit better. So at the base level of the model, which is we have deemed the infrastructure, there are four elements. And the first one is clear goals and objectives. And really for a living learning community to be a best practices living learning community, everyone who's invested in the community needs to have a good sense of what the goals of the community are. And so that would include the faculty who are teaching in the community. That would include staff who are helping to run the community and certainly students as well. So there's clear goals and objectives at the cornerstone of that pyramid. And then the next piece of that infrastructure is a collaboration between academic affairs and residence life and housing. And that collaboration ideally would mean that each of those elements, the academic affairs and the residence life and housing, believe intrinsically that they wouldn't be able to do their work without the other. And Karen's co-PI on the National Study of Living Learning programs really helped me to understand what this collaboration might look like. I went to a seminar that he was giving it and basically he said, you know, that the residence life and housing folks are at the table because they understand student development in a way that perhaps a faculty member doesn't. And the faculty or academic affairs who are at the table understand their discipline in a way that perhaps, you know, the residence life folks don't. And then both are really invested in ensuring that the other one feels valued in the relationship. And so at its best, that's what that collaboration looks like. And then the final piece of the infrastructure level is adequate resources. And Karen's research on the NSLLP really illustrated that there's a wide variation in the amount of resources that are provided to living learning communities. And so, you know, certainly when students are living together on a residence hall floor or a number of residence hall floors, that's a basic resource. But then having spaces for those students to meet, potentially having classroom environments within the community, having, you know, other dimensions of community that you might expect in a residence hall will only be additive to those communities, as well as having funding for students to do the really cool things that often come out of these communities. But like I mentioned before, there's a lot of variation in the amount of resources that are given to these living learning community environments. I know that Mimi has something to add here, Jody, but you just said a word that really struck a chord with me, and that was there's some really cool things. I think you said the word cool. <laughs> Could you just share just a couple that come to mind where you're like, this just blows my mind. What are just a couple really cool things that they're doing out there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the communities that I researched, students were uh, conducting plays, right? Mm. So they would do everything from writing the manuscript to finding a director to direct it to, you know, having the actors. And that takes a lot of talent, but it certainly also takes some resources as well, getting the um, props and the costumes and everything. And, And so having the resources to do that within the community or within the budget of the living learning community is important. And do you have another example of just something that blew your mind? Well, I have one. Yay. Uh, One of our case studies did a Shark Tank competition. And so they had all the students think of needs in the community that are currently unmet or met less than ideally, come up with a possible intervention or a plan or some sort of a project, prototype it, come up with a budget and what they're going to need, and then present it like Shark Tank style to a panel of judges. And the judges chose the winner, and that winner was given X amount of money and actually enacted the plan. And I think it was a ride share, a bike ride share program at the mm. campus of one. Oh, that's great that they could improve their campus that way. All right, Mimi, it is your turn <laughs> to share a little bit more with us about this model, I think, in action, right? Actually, I have to share another one. Oh, sure. Sorry. No, by all means, Jody. I love this. This is cut out for you. (laughs) This is very energizing. Absolutely. All right, Jody has one more to share, please. Yeah. So, atop the base level is what we call the academic environment. Again, the academic environment has four dimensions to it, and those include courses for credit. We found in, in the research that we've done that that students getting into courses and taking courses that actually give them academic credit was important to their learning within the living learning community. In addition, faculty advising is part of that academic environment that students are engaging with faculty in meaningful ways. And oftentimes the easiest way for students and faculty to engage outside the classroom is through an advising relationship. And then the other two dimensions of that academic environment are an academically supportive climate and a socially supportive climate. And so in that academically supportive climate, students might describe that the environment feeds their academic interests, that their intellectual curiosity is welcomed. And a socially supportive environment might be that students, you know, feel like others know them and know their concerns and that students are supportive of any you know, everything as it relates to college. So not only their coursework, but also their co-curricular activities and their overall college experience as well. Mimi, before we get to the recommendation segment, I know we have just skimmed the surface here. I I warned you all it was going to fly by, but what else should we be sure and share about residential learning communities before we move on to the recommendations? Well, Once the infrastructure and the academic environment are solidly in place, the next level of the pyramid is the co-curricular environment. And some of the co-curricular elements that have been demonstrated to show really positive outcomes for students are things like study groups, which given that students are living together, you can really capitalize on the living environment and the proximity that they have to each other. K-12 outreach programs, so getting out into the school system, can also be another co-curricular element. Um, There are certainly some challenges in that area these days, especially with regard to clearances and things of that nature, but those are beneficial co-curricular activities. Career workshops and visiting work settings are also beneficial, as well as other theme-related activities. And then sort of finally, the pinnacle, the top of the pyramid is the idea of integration. And so thinking about how do we, for example, 
link our courses for credit with our co-curricular activities? Or how do we take advantage of the academic affairs and residence life and housing collaboration to create that academically and socially supportive climate? Those are, are important elements of it as well. Before we go to the recommendations, Karen, I have one more question for you. <laughs> you said there was you had researched something like 17 different kinds of communities. Is that correct? Uh, well, there were over 600 different living learning communities in our study that we categorized into 17 types. I can't believe I actually remembered that number. I have a terrible short-term memory for numbers, <laughs> but good, good. So have any of them centered around athletic teams or athletics in general? Interesting. No. Not that I can remember. There's one, we concluded ROTC mm. because often ROTC lives together and takes classes together, but not intercollegiate athletics, no. Although it is fairly common for athletes to live together in the same residence hall. That's an intriguing concept to turn that into a living learning community as well. Yeah, I'm trying to translate it here to our itty-bitty campus out here in Southern California of the ways in which we are already doing this and don't realize it, because I'm sure that happens a lot with people that you yeah. research and they don't even realize what, what they have True. is actually... Another one, sorry, another no, one that is common is honors colleges, and most people don't consider that living learning communities, but yeah. they, all the honors students live together in the same residence hall, have a very specialized curriculum for them, things like that. So we do include that, honors yeah. communities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a good primer for us. And I'm excited to hear from any listeners who want to write in. I'm sure all of you would be as well to hear what people are doing and experimenting with. And I'm so glad to have been introduced to your work. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I just have a quick one that I came across the other day. It is Miriam Webster's Time Traveler. I came across it on Twitter where I come across with most of my fun exploratory stuff like this. So it the it gives you the data on when a word was first used in print. And so you go to this website and you can type in a given year. So for example, that you could put in the year that you were born. And then it will tell you what was the first time that those words were actually placed in the dictionary. So I'm going to go to the year that I was born, 1971. I'll just read. There's a ton of them. but I'll just read off a few of them. HMO, kickboxing, reboot, rest area, some depressing ones, sexual assault, sexual harassment, again in 1971, VCR, I'm going to curse for a moment. I apologize to those of you listening. Um, maybe I'll just spell it out. W-I-S-E-A-S-S. -S. That was the first time that word <laughs> was put in the dictionary. So all kinds of uh, interesting words. And I'm hoping that some of you will go explore perhaps the year you were born or perhaps a year of particular interest and see what words were first put in the dictionary. And Karen, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendation. Great. So first, I, I really want to go to that website and look at my <laughs> birth year. <laughs> But I'm going to change the topic slightly, <laughs> and uh, my recommendation is a book called Educated in Tyranny, Slavery at Thomas Jefferson's University. Earlier this fall, I went on a tour of UVA, but it's not your typical campus tour. It was a tour of the legacy of slavery that's woven into the architecture and the landscape of our campus. So many probably know UVA was founded by Thomas Jefferson, and we all know Thomas Jefferson has a very complicated history when it comes to slavery. But... Basically, the, the hero story about Jefferson at UVA is pretty strong. We all revere him. We call him Mr. Jefferson. We often say, WWTJD, what would Thomas Jefferson do? Um, <laughs> but this is, this is the first time UVA has tried to publicly grapple with its past legacy of slavery. 
and the tour left such a deep impression on me. I, I'm still thinking about it over two months after I've taken it. This book, if for those of you who can't come to Charlottesville and take the tour, this book tells some of the stories of things that people have found about how slavery and uh, segregation and Jim Crow is indelibly inked in our campus, in our history, for, you know, for all time. So for those who can't make the tour, you can at least read about it in this particular book. If someone is in the local area, though, it is something available to the public? You know, I don't know how they're offered. The, we were offered it because the author is a member of our faculty. I'm not sure how you link in if you're just coming in from out of town. Ah, but definitely we should check out the book. It sounds very powerful yes. and a, an Im- important part of our history to be aware, with, aware of. Thank you so much, Karen. And Jody, it's your turn to give your recommendation. Excellent. Well, my recommendation this week is also a book, and it is called The Undergraduate Experience, Focusing Institutions on What Matters Most by Peter Felton, John Gardner, Charles Schroeder, Leo Lambert, and Betsy Barefoot. And this book is on my mind a lot lately because I'm using it as a text in one of my courses, Introduction to Higher Ed. And I also have mentioned it a lot on campus. And the reason for that is it provides a really strong counter narrative to some of the negativity that we're reading about in higher ed lately. And I think that I like it, especially because it helps us to think about how we might situate ourselves a little bit differently to do really good work. And so it's a work smarter, not harder type text. And it provides a lot of recommendations that are low or no cost. It's just a, a different way of thinking about how our university can can work together to educate students in a you know more meaningful and better way. It sounds like such a great resource. I've had Peter Felton on the show before, and he he does just anything I read of his or get my hands on, he just has such a way of making complex topics more accessible to people that need a a good frame to hang on to. He did that on the show he was on, and also I suspect probably does it in this book too. I'm going to have to check it out. So thank you so much for sharing that resource with us, Jody And Mimi, it is your time to wrap up our recommendations experience. Okay, well, my recommendation is a website. It's the K. Patricia Cross Academy website. And the tagline on this is Practical Lessons for Passionate Professors. And they offer a variety of things, very short videos on teaching techniques, things like some of the examples were the Contemporary Issues Journal or the 321 technique, the jigsaw technique. They also have downloadable documents that come along with that. And one of the reasons that I was drawn to this is I'm obviously interested in always improving and coming up with new ways to do the teaching that I do. But I also coordinate our Preparing Future Faculty program here on campus. And so I'm always looking for resources for those graduate students. And this one seemed to be a good one for them. And and I'm enjoying it as well. I would love to have a conversation with you about your program when we're not being recorded because that's such a, for me, recently in recent years becoming responsible for ours, it's so hard because if you try to do too much, it becomes too theoretical and they can't really put it into practice. And so something like the K. Patricia Cross Academy is really helpful because it's backed by the research, but it's very 
tangible. You can put your hands on it, start experimenting with things and, and trying them in your class. So what a great recommendation and what a fun challenge that you get to explore in helping those graduate students be more effective teachers. Thank you so much. And thanks to all three of you for joining me on today's show. I was so glad to be introduced to you and to your work. I'm so inspired. I'm leaving our conversation feeling like there's so much we can do. And I've just really loved hearing about your work. Thanks to all three of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much to Peter Felton for introducing me to today's guests, Mimi, Karen, and Jody. And thanks to the three of you for sharing about your research and your book on living learning communities that work. I hope people will go and explore your book and get a sense of the kinds of ways that these particular communities have been able to have an impact on higher education. If you'd like to go visit today's episode's show notes, you can do that at Teaching and Higher Ed dot com slash 283. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and enjoying it, I'd love it if you would pass it on as a recommendation to one of your colleagues or friends. And if you'd consider rating or reviewing it using the podcast service that you use to listen. Thanks so much for listening today. And I'll see you next time for episode 284.